Weekend, we want to start off by just taking a moment to honor our veterans. So if you are a veteran, or actually still in, I guess if you're still in, are you a veteran? But if you're in the military or were in the military, could you just stand for a moment? We want to recognize and thank you for your service for our country. We're blessed to live in this country, and many brave men and women have given even their lives for us, so we want to be thankful for that, and praise God. Uh, one other quick thing I want to mention is this Saturday is the men's, calling it a mini-retreat because we're not going anywhere. We're coming here from 8 a.m. till 2 p.m., so it's a short span. Right now, I think we have over 100 guys signed up, but I would really want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up yet, you can sign up right afterwards, right outside at the um, Welcome Center. The theme is laying aside. In the, in the Bible, it says, as a Christian, lay aside your lusts and your anger and things like that. So just to be together with other men, encouraging each other, an opportunity to meet other guys. We're going to have a barbecue, uh, catered barbecue from Mission Barbecue. So I'd uh, love to have you guys. And um, if you have any questions, there's some men at the table out there as well. All right, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 22. I always am worried when a lot of people aren't here when it's rainy, because then I have this embarrassing scenario the following week when I say to them, hey, I missed you last Sunday. And they go, oh, well, it was raining. And then I go, it was dry in church. <laughs> and then they go, yeah, that's the other reason. <laughs> Just kidding. That's lame. Okay, so here we are. We're studying through the book of Numbers. We're in a section in which there's a fellow by the name of Balaam who is hired by Balak to curse Israel. Now, I want to start off by reading a verse from Deuteronomy 23 that sort of sets the frame for this. As Moses thought about these events later, this is what he said about this whole story of Balaam. The Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. So you just want that to sink in. As, as God takes this Balaam story, he reminds them, I love you. And Balaam is, is quoted in all of the parts of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. It's, this event is referred to many times in the New Testament. But it comes in an interesting place because it's, it's all of a sudden you're in this dark story of the Bible and suddenly it really is a bright light. And I want to explain why I say that. First of all, I, I um, want to give credit. There's a man by the name of Dr. Ron Allen who did his doctoral dissertation on this whole subject, and Don Cheney had sent this to me. So I want to read something that he said at the beginning. He said, the book of Numbers doesn't present the people of Israel in a very favorable light. In fact, in many respects, it's a tragic account of rebellion, right? I mean, it's about people who refuse to believe God refused to live up to this great God who redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt. There's complaining, disloyalty, discontentment, sinning, and they're provoking God to anger. Even the way he describes some of the places where they had incidents, where God struck them with fire, in Numbers 11 it says, we call that place Taborah, the burning. In Numbers 11 it says, now this place was called Kibrehadeth, the graves of greediness. A bunch of people died there. And then there's Kadesh Barnea, where... God reached his limit. He said, now you're not going into the promised land. 
So 38 years, this wandering in the book of Numbers is for the most part pretty silent and dark and bleak. It's pretty much just people dying as they wander around monotonously. And burials, one dreadful burial after another. Remember God said, you're all going to die out here in the wilderness. And failure, it's a record. The only thing that you, you get to is then another sin, another consequence. Jealousy, impatience, the rebellion of Korah, the snakes, Miriam. Even Moses fails and God says, no, you're not even going in. So you're going, wow, these people messed up. And in the midst of all of that, this Balaam story is actually a bright light because the question really comes something like this. Is God going to fulfill his covenant after all these failures? Is God still going to bring them into the land? Or is God done with these people? He goes, I am finished. So the, so the Balaam story really is like designed to say in the midst of God's people failing him, God is showing his unfailing love and faithfulness. So the way that, the way that we're going to look at this is Balaam gives five speeches. And each of these speeches were intended to be a curse. So he was hired to curse Israel. But in these two chapters, five times the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he, and he, and he bursts out with a speech and it's in poetic form. And I want us to walk through these and think about the, the, the structure. So the first one we saw in chapter 22, or I'm sorry, in 23, there was a brief one in 23. This is where we left off in verses 7 through 10, where God said through Balaam, how can I curse them? They're set apart. They're different from the nations. And so basically, the initial speech of Balaam was, hey, these are a blessed people. These are people set apart and blessed by God. So here's what we're going to pick up today. We're in verse 11. And so after the first attempt at cursing them, it didn't work. So Balak's like, let's do a redo. So follow along. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. He answered and said, must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? In other words, hey man, I know you want me to bless them, but I can't. That's not what God wants me to say. Then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place where you may see them. You'll just see the extreme end of them. You won't see all of them and you'll curse them for me from there. So he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah. He built seven altars, and Balaam said, or Balak said, stand here, I'll meet you. Verse 16, then the Lord met Balaam, put a word in his mouth, and said, return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he came to him as he was standing, and, and so Balak says, what has the Lord spoken? So we're now in the second speech. The first one is God has set apart his people to bless them. The second speech God just finished saying, I'm blessing them. I'm not cursing them. Balak goes, let's see if we can change his mind. So what God's going to emphasize here is, hey, I don't change my mind. I do everything I promise. I keep my word. Speaking of keeping your word, I don't know what your view is politically, but we made a agreement with Iran, right? We gave them our word, and I'm not suggesting that was a good agreement, and I'm not commenting on whether this was a good decision, but as you know, our present leadership decided we're not going to keep our word. We're out. This passage is saying, look, if you're a child of God, and God has promised 
his blessing. He will keep his word to you. Let's read it. Verse 18. Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O sons of Zippor. Here's a key verse. You might want to underline this one. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, God keeps his word. And as Christians, it's really important for us to go, all right, I need to remind myself that whatever God promises, he's not like me. He's not going to unfriend me. He's not going to kick me off the team. God is not a man that he should lie. God is unfailingly faithful to his promises. So let's read. Balak says, behold, I've received a command to bless. When God has blessed, I can't revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. So this is Balaam speaking. Now, there's a problem in this verse because the word that's translated in verse 21, misfortune, that normally is translated sin, iniquity, right? But as the, as the translators are reading this passage, it says he has not observed iniquity in Jacob? You go, am I reading the same book? This whole book is a description of failure after failure. So this is why the translators decided that this lesser meaning is probably better. He hasn't observed misfortune, not in the sense that they haven't had problems, but that somehow, because of God's presence with them, God's good with them. And I want you to look at this phrase in verse 21. The Lord his God is with him. That's something you and I need to remind ourselves. Life can really get crazy. Okay, but wait a minute. God is with me. He promised not to leave me nor forsake me. Doesn't matter how I feel. Doesn't matter what my circumstances are. God is with me and he's going to keep his word. God brings them out of Egypt. He's for them like the horns of the wild ox. Now, of course, these are metaphors. Like, this would, you know, they didn't say back then, yo, man, I got your back, right? This seems weird. Hey, you with me on this one? I'm for you like the horns of a wild ox, right? Okay, okay. But think about, you know, if you ever watch bull riding or whatever, horns of a wild ox are strong. They're powerful. They're secure. And God's going, I'm for you. I'm for you. And that's important too. God is for you. Isn't that what Romans 8 says? Who can bring a charge against us? We're God's blessed chosen people. Who can be against us? And so God is announcing here, I am going to unchangeably bless my people, regardless of their failures. Verse 23. There's no omen against Jacob. There's no divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel, what God has done. And now he, 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 he compares the nation of Israel. Now there's these million people in the wilderness. He compares them to a hungry lion who's just about to come in and devour the people of the promised land and take over. This is the exact opposite of what Balak had hoped for, remember? In the beginning of the story, Balak goes, these people are going to lick us up like grass. We better curse them. And instead, Balaam says, a people rises like a lioness, 
as a lion it lifts itself. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Talk about paying somebody and not getting a, a good deal. He hires Balaam, you know. He calls the temp agency. Hey, I need a, I need a, a fortune teller to come and curse the people. And everything that he's asking him to do, Balaam's saying the opposite. So look at Balak's increasing anger, verse 25. Then Balak said to Balaam, don't curse him at all or bless him. And Balaam goes back to his same thing. Didn't I tell you? Whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do. You're like, Balak, are, are, you, are you getting a theme here? But nope. Verse 27. Then Balak said to Balaam, please come, I'll take you to another place. Let's try it a third time. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. It's almost like you want to go, did you not just hear what God said? I won't change my mind. And Balak goes, let's try it again. Let's, let's go over here and try it again. So Balaam said to Balak, okay, now bear in mind here, Balaam is guilty too because he should have just said, this is stupid, let's stop it. But we're going to learn next week that the reason he kept doing this is he wanted that money. He was promised, I'll give you a bunch of money if you curse the people. So he's trying to curse them, but God won't let him. So Balaam took Bala or Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland, and Balak said to Balaam, Build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as he had done. Now, now, remember this, that back then, these fortune tellers, they would kill animals. And then they would even look at the way that the, the, the body parts and the entrails were there. And they would try to find signs out of that. They were called omens. And this is what Balaam's job was. This is what he did all the time. But even Balaam, this pagan fortune-telling omen doer, he comes to the point of going, this ain't working. So look at chapter 24, verse 1. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to seek omens. He's like, let's just skip the omen junk. It's not working. But he set his face toward the wilderness. He lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. Now remember, when we, when we first started this study, remember those pictures of this orderly group of people gathered by tribes around the tabernacle? And he sees this million band of people and he's just stunned by their beauty and their orderliness. And so it says, he took up his discourse as the Spirit of God came on him. And he says, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, verse 2, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I want to remind you of something that I said last week, and I'll prove it next week, is even though everything Balaam says is exactly what God wanted, this is unusual. I don't think for a moment that Balaam's a believer. In fact, the rest of the Bible is going to tell us how wicked he was. But this is a demonstration of God's sovereignty. God is grabbing him by the mouth and saying, this is what I want you to say. And so when God spoke to prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes it would be in a dream, but sometimes they would go into a trance and have a vision. And that's what happened here. He goes, I hear the words of God. I see visions of the Almighty. I fall down, but my eyes are uncovered. 
Well, what did he see? Well, look at verse 5. And Balak's like, we got him this time. Give him one. Give him a curse. And instead, look what he says this time. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. He just gave him a compliment. And, and what this oracle is basically going to say is that God is blessing his people with a beautiful coming kingdom. It's crazy, right? These are a bunch of ragtag Bedouins living in tents in the wilderness. But look how Balaam prophesies about them. He says, verse 6, like valleys or palm trees that stretch out, like gardens beside the river. Now remember, they're in the desert. They haven't seen gardens and rivers for a long time. Like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Cedars are good trees. If they're planted beside the water, that's even better. He's picturing like this beautiful utopia, this Shangri-La. He's picturing New Zealand, right? So to speak. Somewhat like heaven is described in the book of Revelation. Water was a huge commodity. They didn't have it. But look how he describes it. Water shall flow from his buckets. Not only will he have it, it's overflowing. His seed shall be by many waters. In other words, this people, God's people are going to multiply. His king. Now, wait a minute. What do you mean his king? Israel didn't have a king. This is prophecy. His king shall be higher than Agag. And his kingdom shall be exalted. What kingdom? What are you talking about? Balaam's prophesying. And one of the themes of the, of the Old Testament is this, that in the future, the Messiah is going to come and set up his kingdom. This is what caused the Jews so much confusion when Jesus came the first time. They knew Messiah was coming to set up his kingdom, but they didn't know that Messiah was coming to suffer first. And they couldn't sort that out. So you've heard me say this. If, if you have a Jewish friend, or if you're here this morning and you're Jewish, I, I frequently ask Jewish people, could you please tell me why you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, right? So I have a new dentist I went to this past week, and turned out that he was Jewish. So I said, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, I teach theology in the Bible, but I'm tired of... Christians asking me, why don't Jewish people believe Jesus is the Messiah? I said, I've been asking Jewish people. And he goes, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. It's the third Jewish doctor that I've asked. Well, how do you know Jesus isn't the Messiah? And all three of them, I said, well, how are you going to know who he is? If you know who he isn't, it can't be Jesus. How are you going to know who he is? And not a single one of them knew enough about the Old Testament to even go, well, the Old Testament says this, this, and this. And it's actually the fourth Jewish person that I've just said, hey, listen. Now, what you and I can learn to do is say, well, why don't I start finding some of these Old Testament passages so that if the opportunity comes up, I can say, hey, let's look at Isaiah 53. It says the Messiah is going to suffer, right? So, for example... In the book of Acts, this is what Paul would do. It said in verse 3, he would go into the synagogue, Acts 17. He would open up the Old Testament, and he would show them Messiah is going to suffer. Show them Isaiah 53. And then Messiah is going to rise from the dead and reign in his kingdom. And then he would say, Jesus 
is this Messiah that's promised, okay? So, most of you are familiar with passages about Messiah's suffering, okay? I want you to become familiar with a, a passage about Messiah's future kingdom. And I'd like you to turn now for a moment to Daniel chapter 7. This is a very important passage. Jesus quoted this verse. This is a, a, a huge prophecy about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus. But in seed form, Balaam's already saying, a king and a kingdom are coming out of Israel. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this amazing vision of God who he calls the Ancient of Days. And the Lord Jesus Christ coming up to God. Okay, Jesus has a lot of names. But one of those names is the Son of Man. Did you know that was Jesus' favorite title for himself? As you read the Gospels, that's, that's how he refers to himself. The Son of Man. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The phrase Son of Man is an Old Testament phrase from this passage that describes Jesus, the coming Messiah. Now, Daniel's written 600, 500 years before Jesus. But here's another passage that predicts Jesus, the king of the world, having an eternal kingdom. Look at Daniel 7, verse 13. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, interestingly, when Jesus was being tried by the high priests and the religious leaders, they go, tell us, are you the Messiah? He goes, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He quoted this passage. But look what it says about Jesus. He comes up to God the Father, the ancient of days. Verse 14. And to him was given... God the Father gives Jesus dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. There's seven billion people prancing around on this planet trying to figure out what we're here for. If you're a Christian, you know what we're here for. We're here to advance the gospel, to invite people to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ by his grace through faith because one day he's going to come back and all of his enemies will be cast into eternal fire. But all of those who believe in him will become part of this everlasting kingdom and there will be people there from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's a fantastic promise. And Balaam even gets in on the action by prophesying about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus. All right, let's go back to Numbers. We'll keep going. Speech one, God set apart his people for blessing. Speech two, God's going to keep his word. His blessing is unchangeable. Speech three, they're going to have a beautiful kingdom. Now, this is us. This isn't just Israel. This is us. We're going to be part of this beautiful kingdom. Now, speech four is, in my mind, my favorite because this speech is going to say this ultimate fulfillment of God's blessing 
is going to come through Jesus. All right, so let's, let's begin in verse 10. By now, Balak's like, I'm firing you, Balaam. He, Donald Trump's him, you're fired, right? Verse 10, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. You're fired. Flee to your place now. I told you I would honor you greatly. In other words, you could have made a bunch of money. You could have been famous. Now watch this. This is really important. Don't miss this. He says, but you know why it didn't happen? Wow. Verse 11. Behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. You know what, Balak? You could have you made it big, but God messed it up for you. And you know what? In its own weird way, a lot of people struggle with that. Good things are happening. Man, God's my boy. I love him. But let something bad happen. It's God's fault. And I'm mad at God. Somehow we have this idea in our mind, if you do what's right, that you'll be blessed. You'll have your best life. Things are going to go well. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. God has not promised that he will honor us and bless us and make us rich and, and give us all of these things now. Those things come in his kingdom when Jesus comes back. Right now, he may call you to suffer a difficult marriage or a difficult job or difficult health or persecution or trouble with your family. God says through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. And so we need to be careful that when we go through trials that we don't get upset with God. See, it's God's fault. Why is God doing this to me? Why does God hate me? That's what Satan wants us to do. James chapter 1 speaks of us persevering in our trials. Blessed is the man who perseveres in his trials. Let no one say when he's tested, I'm being tempted by God. God loves us, but don't blame him when difficulties come into your life. And if you miss out on some earthly pleasure because you did what's right, rejoice. Balaam should have actually said, you're right. God did hold me back from your earthly honors, and I don't need your earthly honors because I want the honor that comes from Jesus. Peter said it this way. He goes, if you do what's wrong and you suffer, big deal. But in 1 Peter 2, he says, but if you do what's right and you suffer for it, this finds favor with God. For you and I have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. So I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, do what's right. It might not be easy. Trust God and obey him. Don't cut corners. And if things get worse, it doesn't mean God hates you. It doesn't mean God's not blessing you. It doesn't mean God's not for you. If you really struggle with this, read Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a powerful psalm by a guy named Asaph who looked around in life and he saw his godless friends prospering. And he was trying his best to follow God and his life stunk. And he got mad at God. 
and he tells his story. He says, surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, I'm not so sure about that. He says, all day long I kept my hands pure, and God, you did nothing but afflict me. And he says, I almost betrayed a whole generation because he was going to give a testimony that God isn't fair. But then he says this, but then I went to the house of God. He went to church. And he says, and then I remembered their latter end. You see, he was looking too nearsightedly. He's like, yeah, these wicked people who could care less about God, they got so much going for them, and look at me. I don't have health. I don't have my job, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, but I forgot. In the long run, following Jesus, I've got a bright future. He's so embarrassed by it that at the end of the psalm, he goes, oh, Lord, I was like a beast. I was ignorant, but nevertheless, your right hand held me. And so just remember this, that when bad things happen and you're trying to obey God, don't blame God. Trust him. All right. Now, Balak says, look, man, didn't I tell you, verse 12 and 13, you could give me your whole household, but I can't do anything other than what God speaks to me. Now, this is funny. He's already fired. But Balak goes, hey, I got one more for you. I got another one. Hang on, <laughs> this is just funny. Four times you failed to bless me and curse them. And Balak says, hey, listen, before you go, now behold, I'm going to my people. Come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. <laughs> Can you imagine the nerve? Good for him. He goes, hey, listen, God just gave me one more. You got a minute? Talk about going from bad to worse. I, I, I imagine Balak's going, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. But he just tells him anyway. Look at verse 15. And he took up his discourse. And by the way, I want you to make a note here. You might want to just put here in your Bible. This is a very famous passage. A prophecy about Christ. Jews, even though they don't think it's Jesus, Jewish people think this is about the Messiah. The early church fathers quoted this. Athanasius, Justin Martyr, about Jesus. Even the Jews that lived in the Qumran community, this was one of their go-to passages about the Messiah. So let's see what he says. He took up his discourse and he said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, sees the visions of the Almighty. So verse 17, as he gets to the meat of it, he's going, man, I'm looking way ahead now. Because remember, this is 1500 B.C. What do you see? Let's go to verse 17. I see him. Yeah, you see who? This is Jesus. I see him. But not now. I behold him. But not near. Now, I don't think he had like a a little map and a timeline said 1,500 years from now Messiah will come. But he, but he sees Jesus. A star shall come forth from Jacob. Now remember, Hebrew poetry, they repeat phrases in different words but bringing the same meaning. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. That, that's a veiled way of saying a king. That's what kings carry. They rule with a rod. 
And he shall crush the four out of Moab. He shall tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, will be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly. Now, I want to hold on that verse for a minute. A star. A star. Do you remember back at Christmas time when we read about the wise men? And it says, Behold, wise men come from the east and said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star and we've come to worship him. And, and many commentators will say, I guess they just got some special revelation from God. And, and, and yet, I'm going, I think they got that from here. Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, Balaam was from the east. He was from Mesopotamia. Okay? So he went back to Mesopotamia. This story, this particular verse was a very famous prophecy. Jews knew this. And there were Jews that stayed in Babylon. Daniel was from the east, from Mesopotamia. He was making prophecies. Okay? So if they knew, hey, one day there's going to be a great king, a star will rise in the east. Okay? Even if they just knew that much, right? Why all the big deal about it? Why go on this hundreds of mile journey to go find some silly little baby who's laying in a manger and bow down and give him gold, silver, and frankincense? Because they got it. This one that Balaam saw, this star is going to rule the world. And we might as well get on his team as soon as possible, even while he's still a baby. You don't worship babies, but you do if you believe that baby's going to grow up and become the king of the world. You want to read a fascinating psalm, you start looking at the news, you're like, North Korea, Iran, United States, Russia, who's, who's on first base? Read Psalm 2. The psalmist says this. He goes, I don't know why the nations of this world are in an uproar. I don't know why the kings of the earth take their counsel together against God and against his anointed Messiah, saying, we will not allow him to rule over us. It's exactly what this world is doing. If there's one thing they will not tolerate, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and his authority and his word. And they hate him. And the Bible says in the last days, all the nations of the earth will gather against him to fight against him. And he's going to return from heaven. But the psalmist says this, while they're gone, we won't let the Messiah rule over us. God sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. Then the Lord Jesus speaks and he says, I will tell the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's Jesus. And then the psalmist says, Let me draw out an application. He says, If I was you, I would worship the king. Get down on your knees and worship Jesus lest he become angry with you and his wrath soon kindled. See, this is the message that we bring to the world. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is coming again. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus is the Lord. And those of us who have been graciously awakened to believe that, we have such a wonderful Savior who has 
come and died and rose and is coming again. Then Balaam does something really fascinating. He says, by the way, let me just mention something about God's enemies, okay? God's enemies come in many forms. There's aggressive ones, and then there's passive ones. But they're still his enemies. The Bible says that every single person that doesn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is an enemy of God in one way or another, overtly or covertly. Even religious people, if they're not following God's word, are enemies and rebels. And God has promised that one day, he's not willing for men to perish, but he's going to destroy all of his enemies. And so this particular prophecy is about the destruction of the Greeks and of the Romans who will also attack Israel. And then I'll draw out some applications. Then he looked at Amalek, took up his discourse, and Amalek was first among the nations, but his end shall be destruction. Now Amalek becomes sort of a figure of those who oppose God, because the Amalek was the one who attacked Israel. If you read the book of Exodus, while they were wandering, it says the Amalekites attacked Israel. God got so angry at that that he told Joshua to write in a book about how he was going to one day destroy all the Amalekites. Exodus 17, God said to Moses, write this in a book and place it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the heavens. And Moses wrote and put up a banner and said, The Lord is my banner, a war of Yahweh against Amalek for all generation. God's up in heaven. He loves people, right? But every day that people shake their fist at God in rebellion by doing things their way, there will come a time when his patience will reach its limit. And Jesus is going to come. But he's so gracious because the Bible says he's not slow about his promise. But he's patient. He's not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. So he prophesies of the destruction of the Kenites. And then when it says ships shall come from Ketim in verse 24. That suggested that it was the Greeks and the Romans that will come. But at the end of the day, verse 24 sort of summarizes it. What's going to happen to anybody who doesn't follow Jesus? What's going to happen to anybody who doesn't follow Jesus? They also will come to destruction. Oh, you know, P Pastor, I don't believe that. My God would never put anyone in hell. Well, I don't know who your God is, but he's not the God of the Bible. You see, John 3.16 says... Whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Well, let's do the logic. What about those who don't surrender and believe in him? They shall perish with an everlasting destruction. So as we close out this passage, we go, wow, this is a marvelous, marvelous, bright light in the midst of a, a difficult time that people are failing left and right, and God comes on the scene, he goes... Number one, and this is our application, number one, we are a blessed and chosen people. If you are a Christian, you are dearly loved by God. You are chosen, and you are blessed by him beyond what you can imagine, beyond what I can imagine. Ephesians 1 says, I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm forgiven. I have the Holy Spirit. 
I have the presence of the Lord Jesus. I have his word. I have other Christians. I've been snatched out of Satan's power and placed in the kingdom of his son. We are a blessed people. But the cool thing to remember is that those promised blessings will never change. I find that I and many Christians deal with remorse and guilt. Like, wow, I think God's disappointed with me. I could have done more. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? You know what? God's blessing and grace and favor to you is not mitigated by you. God unfailingly sets his love on you. And even when you were dead in your sins, the Bible says, even though we deserve God's wrath, because of his rich love for us, he made us alive together with Christ. So knowing that, you have a great God. We have a great God who loves us, who sent the star to die for us. Then I can't go back and, and, and live in my past, but moving forward, how am I going to live? How will my life reflect the fact that I believe that God has unfailingly blessed me and promises me to keep his word. You know what I want to challenge some of you to do? God's promises are unfailing, but some of you are impoverished. You're, you're poor in your spirit. You know why? Because you haven't learned how to feed yourself God's promises. You know, years ago, some of you had a grandmom who had a little plastic loaf of bread. Anybody remember that? On her kitchen table. And it was promises and you would pull out one. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Though you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Peter says, God's word is full of precious and magnificent promises. God wants you and me to be encouraged by his promises. And right now you may be feeling like, God, why are my kids obeying me? Why do I have bad health? Take out your Bible and show me one promise of God that he's not fulfilling. But I feel so alone. Oh, I'm sorry, then I guess God didn't keep his word when he said, I am with you always. You're like, so wait a minute. Well, if I don't feel him, but he promised that he's with me, I guess I need to think differently. Yeah. The Bible says, take up the shield of faith and resist those flaming missiles of Satan. So we have this wonderful story of Balaam. And we have in this story a great meta-narrative, the whole Bible story. God loves his people. He's chosen us. He's blessed us. He will keep his word to us. And it's going to come through a king. And that king is going to reign in his kingdom. So the last thing I want you to do is turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 where Peter reflects on the Lord Jesus and his coming kingdom, and he says, you know, that should make a difference. If Jesus is the bright and morning star who's coming again, that should make a difference. Well, pastor, you know, I, I haven't been reading my Bible. I'm really busy. I, prayer, gosh, just don't seem to be able to get any traction with prayers. I know I'm not in church a whole lot, or I want to get in a small group, but right now, with all that's going on, and we just get lulled into this lukewarm, lukewarm. Look what Peter says. 2 Peter 3. The Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, 
But he's patient. He's not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The only reason why the whole world is not in hell right now is because God is desiring people to come to Jesus. And you and I have opportunities to build relationships and to at least try to talk to our friends and family about Christ. But the day of the Lord will come, look at this verse, like a thief. Thieves don't leave their carts. I'll be here at 10 o'clock tomorrow night. So Jesus could come back today. And, and here's what's going to happen. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with its tense heat. What about my house? What about my beach house? What about my new car? The earth and everything in it will be burned up. You mean all of my possessions? I'm just storing up all this stuff and is this all going to burn up? Yep. Because that's not the stuff that matters in life. Well, what matters? Look at verse 11. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Uh, hey, Peter's not saying burn your house down and go live in a tent. He's just saying, what's, what's your values? What's important to you? Because he says in verse 12, you and I should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. People get all excited. Ooh, my movie's coming out. Can't wait for my movie to come out. Well, how about this? My king is coming. And what matters is whether people are saved or lost, whether I'm godly or ungodly, whether I'm walking with Jesus or whether I'm wishy-washy in the world. So he says, the heavens will be destroyed with intense heat. But verse 13, but according to his promise, which will not change, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth. So those of you that are suffering right now, it's not going to last. There's a new heaven and a new earth for all of God's children. And the Bible says no more suffering, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. The former things are all passed away. That's what we're waiting for. So therefore, look at verse 14. Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. Oh, I don't have time to read my Bible. We all have the same amount of time in the week. It's what we choose to do with it. Be diligent to be found by Jesus when he comes back in peace, spotless, and blameless. Well, wait, does that mean I shouldn't be with these people doing this, reading this, watching this, spending my money on this? Well, I, I can't sort that out for you. You can't sort that out for me, but you can sort this out. Lord Jesus, if you came today... Would I be embarrassed because of the things I've been doing, the way I'm living? Would I, would I feel dirty because I've, I'm stained by this world? Or would I be eager to see you and hoping that I can snatch as many people to come along with me and bring them into the kingdom of God? And I, and I just want to plead with you, if you're not praying for lost people, would you tell me why? I want you to give me a good reason why you're not pleading with God for lost people. I know you don't hate them. But God uses prayer to save people. And the only reason Jesus hasn't come is the Bible says he's not willing for men to perish. These are the things that matter. You're like, ah, oh, you know, things are tight. I, I really can't afford to give to God. Oh, that's right. My bad. 
This is a challenging passage, but it's, I'm so encouraged, aren't you? I mean, this is a great, we have a great God who's made great promises and a great king, but we have a mission. And perhaps the Lord is, 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 is speaking to your heart, recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. So let's take a moment to, to close in prayer. If the Lord has spoken to your heart and and you have not surrendered to the Lord Jesus, you haven't believed that he died and rose again for you, then that's first and foremost. I invite you right there in your seat to say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you're coming again. I believe you died and rose again. And I don't deserve salvation, but I ask you to forgive me and change my heart so that I could become a follower. And now for the rest of us, I look at my own life and at times I'm embarrassed to be a a comfortable, lukewarm American Christian. Just take a moment and ask God to light a fire in our hearts. Romans 12 says, be devoted to prayer, be diligent in spirit, serving the Lord. Father, forgive us. Just take a moment and renew your commitment. Thanking God. Father, thank you for the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. Thank you that you have given him all authority in heaven and on earth. Help us to follow him. I pray that you would bless your people. Send them out with such encouragement. The Lord is for them, not against them. We are forgiven. We don't need to wallow in guilt. Jesus shed his blood. And now as blood-bought children of God, may we be diligent to go out and do what we can to serve you in this church and in this world. And we pray all these things for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Guys, don't forget about the sign-up for the men's mini-retreat.